The pandemic, which has just swept around the earth, has been without precedent. There have been more deadly epidemics, but they have been more circumscribed. There have been epidemics almost as widespread, but they have been less deadly. Floods, famines, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions have all written their stories in terms of human destruction, almost too terrible for comprehension. Yet never before has there been a catastrophe, at once so sudden, so devastating, and so universal. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast of the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and the topic of this episode is pandemics in the past. The passage I just read is from an article entitled The Lessons of the Pandemic that was published by Major George Soper in Science in May 1919, more than a hundred years ago. The deadly disease described is the Spanish flu, which infected 500 million people, about a third of the world's population at the time. The death toll may have been anything from 17 to 50 million and possibly as high as 100 million, making it one of the deadliest pandemics in human history. This is the third episode that is related to the current coronavirus pandemic. Previously, I have talked to Ulf Landegian about the development of antibody tests and the role of life sciences, and to Sverker Selin about the effects the pandemic can have on society in a longer perspective. In this episode, we look back at pandemics in the past and what we can learn from them. Today I'm talking to Felix Schapentier-Jungquist, who is a Pro Futura Fellow here at SCAS. So welcome to SCAS Talks, Fredrik. You are an associate professor in history and your research focuses on paleoclimatology, uh, climate history. Can you say a few words about yourself? I have been working for a number of years now with climate history and agriculture history. My research is mainly at the intersection of the humanities, mainly history and the natural sciences, mainly physical geography. I am frequently involving data and methods from the natural sciences to answer questions in my historical research. Right now, I'm leading a research project about the relative role of adverse climate conditions compared to the role of various societal factors for the occurrence and severity of food crisis and famines in Europe from the early 16th century to the late 18th century. I have not worked particularly with pandemics or epidemics in the historical times, although I have worked with the late medieval plague in the perspective of demographic development and building activity changes in Europe. I have also worked some with epidemics in the light of climate changes and epidemics during famines. I am also at present involved in a smaller project about historical malaria in 18th and 19th century Sweden, that is before malaria disappeared from Scandinavia at the turn of the 20th century. Very interesting. Malaria in Sweden is nothing that you think about today. It's, you think yeah. it, when you go travel, you might catch All it. All of Europe had malaria up to the Arctic Circle and it was one of the most common and also deadly diseases in, in history far back in history, and it was a big problem 
across Europe. It's not a tropical disease. It's restricted today, driven back to the tropics, basically. But this was a disease that to a large extent was uh, related to the way of life and the poverty and closeness to domestic animals and to um, the lack of of modern medical care. So people that were infected by malaria, when a mosquito bite them, this mosquito could be infected by their blood and infect another person. And uh, we really don't know exactly how malaria disappeared from not only Europe, but also from the United States and Canada and a lot of other places. We don't exactly know the process, but we know that this happened when uh, basically poverty and the pre-modern society disappeared and transformation of agriculture and the rising of modern medicine. But today we want to talk about the coronavirus, the new coronavirus that has been affecting us since the end of last year and really came to Europe in the beginning of 2020. And you have looked back a little bit in time and looked at past pandemics. So which one have there been like in the past uh, hundred or something years that we have been affected by? I would put it another way. We have basically been lacking major pandemics in the last 50, 60 years. Pre-Second World War, and actually to the 50s and 60s to a certain extent, pandemics were the normal state, came pandemics in every generation. We also had quite high mortality in the seasonal flu. And this was a normal state. The abnormal thing in the history of mankind is basically a lack of pandemics. And this had made the corona pandemic so interesting because this is probably one of the least deadly pandemics in the world history. If you look at infection, fatality rates is so low compared to almost any other infectious disease that have been spreading around the world in the past and still the effects or the reaction rather to it is much larger than most historic pandemics and this is a in my opinion a result of a lack of preparation and acceptance and surprise of a new pandemic because you have not had a modern pandemic is one or two generations since you actually had um, A similar pandemic, I would say it's the Hong Kong flu, probably is the last one in the late 1960s that is kind of similar. You had the swine flu in 2009 and so, but they never really turned to be more deadly than the seasonal flu. They've been talking about pandemics, that there would come a new pandemic, but this had not happened. And when you finally get the pandemic, it's a very, so to say, mild pandemic which make the overwhelming majority of infected people not very sick. But for certain parts of the population, mainly old and multi-sick people, it can be a highly deadly disease. And this is also what is exceptional with this disease, because in the past, this proportion of the population that would die of such a disease was very small compared to today, because We didn't have that many old people and people with underlying severe health conditions typically in the past didn't reach an old age. So today we have a population with all these risk factors, quite large population in many countries with these risk factors and a very, very fragile health that actually makes it in many cases hard even to evaluate 
in many cases, if the cause of death had been this virus or their underlying health issues, if you died with corona or, or of corona. So this is really a new situation also with this population that is very sensitive for these infectious diseases. Whereas, for example, the Spanish flu, that was a totally another category of a pandemic. It was a pandemic where young and healthy people, to a large extent, died of this disease. This was a highly deadly disease, even for young and healthy people. Actually, it was a higher proportion of the infected people that were young than that was old that died of the Spanish flu, which makes it a kind of special disease in the opposite way. It's a totally different demographic pattern. What is similar is that you get a global pandemic and often you compare the Spanish flu with the corona because you expect that it will come second and maybe third waves of the corona, like the flu pandemics. But the deadliness, so to say, of the virus and which parts of the population that get seriously ill or die of the virus is totally different in these two pandemics. And it also makes the corona pandemic different basically from every other pandemic in history. Many pandemics have killed children, first and foremost, or all ages. This pandemic is mostly dangerous for old and multi-sick people. Younger people or more healthy people that get seriously ill or die of this disease is the exception. And this also makes this pandemic, so to say, an exception compared to the historic pandemics. You can still see some similarities, though. For example, a socioeconomic aspects of who get infected, that people that are wealthy or live in more wealthy areas and have a certain type of jobs are less exposed to the disease. And people more the poorer layers, so to say, of society in almost all countries, regardless if it's in Italy, United States, United Kingdom, Germany or Sweden, they are more at risk from this disease. And you can even see some difference between nursing homes, for example, if it's a high status nursing home, the situation seems to be less bad in the number of people that die or get infected. So this is a certain social socioeconomic aspects of this pandemic, which you also saw in the, almost all pandemics in the past. But also in the past, even if you go to very deadly pandemics like the Black Death, you had all strata of society also infected, but often it's certain strata of society that is more vulnerable than others. I was thinking about a bit more recent pandemics like Ebola and the first SARS and also MERS, which have been locally affecting the society a lot, but they never came to Europe or they stayed in one place. And at least I and maybe many others also thought that when the coronavirus outbreak came in Wuhan, that, well, this is another one of those that is contained in one area and they will get it under control and we won't get it here or into other countries. Um, How does this compare to this Ebola and other outbreaks that we have seen not so long ago. SARS, MERS, Ebola, it's highly deadly diseases and even young and healthy people typically get very ill of these diseases with a high fertility rate but also you get typically very severely ill. You will not go around to spread it. With corona most people get 
mildly sick or moderately sick or not sick at all, but still can carry the virus and spread it. So when the overwhelming majority of the infected don't get seriously ill, you don't know typically if you got the coronavirus or some other cold virus. Actually, it's a kind of cold virus. We have four common colds that are caused by other coronaviruses. And when many people are even uncertain if they have had the coronavirus or some other cold virus, this type of disease that most of the people infected can carry this without being seriously ill, then it's almost impossible to stop this type of virus because if you have, say, SARS or Ebola, the overwhelming majority of the infected get very, very sick and a large proportion of them die, even if they're young and healthy. This will be totally different because they can't spread the disease if you are sick in bed at home or in hospital bed and are really, really badly off, you will not spread the virus. But if you don't even know or if you are infected or just feeling that you have a cold but you don't know which type, which type of cold it is, you will of course spread the virus. And this is how corona has spread around the world. Because people even, for example, if we talk again about nursing home facilities, one of the big problems is that many people that are taking this virus, the highly vulnerable people that are very likely to not only get seriously ill, but also die of the coronavirus, they've been infected by nursing home staff that often is not even aware of their carrying it. So it's really the difference of this type of virus. I would say this virus is optimal for spreading because it has a low fertility rate, but for certain parts of the population it's very dangerous, but it still can spread because for the majority of the population it's seldom serious. And it has a rather long uh, incubation time since you get the virus until you get sick of it if you at all get sick of it. And therefore you can travel around the world or be meeting people before you get sick. And therefore all type of travel restrictions or quarantine measures and so have been quite uh, unsuccessful. And they are also been for similar viruses always unsuccessful in the past. All types of, so to say, lockdown measures, etc. have been very successful in some cases or quarantine measures if you have a highly deadly disease where a high proportion of the majority gets severely ill, then it can be not always, but sometimes successful measures, including the Spanish flu, where basically not all got seriously ill, but it was not restricted to a smaller proportion of the infected people that got seriously ill. And incubation time, I think, I'm not exactly sure about this, but I think it was also typically shorter. And it's almost impossible with this trace tracking and tracing system if you have a large proportion that is not ill or not seriously ill. This have worked very well for SARS, for example, Ebola, MERS, because people get very sick and they can you can identify the symptoms and people can self-report them, typically go to hospital and you can trace the contacts. But when a lot of people are around in society and not get sick enough, for even being sure that they have it or not even being aware of it. This is almost impossible also with the widespread virus to track it down and trace the contacts. It's possible even with the virus that is like the coronavirus, if it's a very limited disease when it's still a kind of cluster disease, 
in certain parts of a country, in certain cities or in certain circles, then it can work. And you've actually been managing in some places to contain this virus, but that's far before it had been a widespread disease. As soon as it's widespread disease in society, it's basically unstoppable with the methods that have been so successful with other potential deadly pandemics in the last 20 years or so. This is actually something that is even taking up in this uh, old article from 1919, that one of the points why it's difficult to fight the disease. The author says, he says that we don't know how to prevent the spread of the disease and which measures must be employed. And that sounds very familiar to today's scenario then. Yes, for the Spanish flu, also had certain characteristics that made it difficult to separate from an ordinary cold. It was a more severe disease, as we already talked about, but still was not so severe as SARS or Ebola. So still you could have a lot of people in society out working, feeling moderately ill and spreading it around. And this type of disease have, to my knowledge, never in the history of the world been successfully contained. I've got this question a few times now during the corona pandemic. If there are any examples of successful mitigation strategies or suppression strategies in the past, and I basically can say right away, no, it's not. Serious illnesses that are serious for the majority of the infected, which have already in the medieval times actually been often quite successful in containing. But this type of disease... I can't think of any example of a successful mitigation strategy. You have been able to postpone the spread, but typically it has been coming in a few waves. One, two, three, or be in the first wave and then you have it spread around in society. But um, one thing that puzzles me a lot is that most of this epidemic modeling have not including a seasonal pattern of this disease. And that is quite uh, surprising because even the other coronaviruses, the cold viruses, have in the temperated zone at least clear seasonal patterns in the winter half of the year. You have more infections and in the summer half year you have less infections. There's various reasons for this, but all similar diseases from the flu until most cold viruses in the temperate zone and even parts of the subtropics, you have this seasonal pattern. So even if it levels off now and start to level off in many places in April, May, it's hard to say to what extent this was to different suppression strategies or partly due to simply the change in the seasonal cycle. It might be unrelated, but it fits very well other diseases, their seasonal pattern, and it makes it also likely that regardless of uh, suppression, mitigation strategies, that you will get, if not a second wave, an increase of cases in the autumn and throughout the winter. I mean, this is the typical pattern, and you've seen it for hundreds of years for this type of disease. It's a clear seasonal pattern. You can't fully explain that with temperature, humidity, or human behavior. It's many theories, but it's well observed that Whereas in the tropics, you have less of a seasonal patterns of different type of viruses, cold viruses and influenza. Because they have the same temperature all year round. I was also thinking about another factor that has been discussed a lot is travel. In what 
extend travel has contributed to the spread of the disease and we have seen a lot of travel restrictions. But how has this been in the past? How has, since people traveled less a hundred years ago, how has travel been contributing to the spread of disease and especially viruses? The spread goes faster with modern communications and especially with this type of virus, you can travel around the world before you potentially get ill. Even in the Spanish flu days, well, fewer people traveled long distances and it went slower, but it was still good communications enough for it spreading in a couple of months around most of the world. And also, if you go even further back in time with sailing ships and so, you could get um, different types of diseases, if not to all the world, to large parts of the world within a year or two years. We also need to remember with travel restrictions that they are not applicable to their own country citizens or permanent residents. So, for example, when you have a travel restriction, it only applies to certain categories of foreigners. And uh, we have seen numerous examples of this, that people are, on the same time you impose the travel restrictions for foreigners, you really urge their own country citizens and also, in many cases, permanent residents to return as soon as possible to the home country, typically without any screening. And we have examples that in a couple of weeks, hundreds of thousands of people have returned from around the world on the erg of a country that has imposed certain travel restrictions for foreigners. And I mean, all type of travel restrictions are advised against from most health authorities for this reason. The World Health Organization is against general travel restrictions. Also the European health authorities, despite many travel restrictions within Europe, are strongly against it. One of the first very much highlighted travel restrictions was the American travel restrictions in, I don't remember, it was mid-March or early March. I don't remember the date now. And just a few weeks after this, center of the corona pandemic was in the United States because, of course, it's not only by foreign citizens that are not green card holders and not in essential travel, etc. It's not only foreign tourists that carry this virus. So it's really, this type of travel restrictions make not really sense. I can't see really many examples, neither today or in the past, that you have been a successful measure to stop the spread of the disease. That might be places where you don't, where you have relatively little travel already. And with travel restrictions, you get a lesser chance of getting many new cases imported. But in other countries where people travel all the time, the virus will have been coming in already before the travel restrictions and we continue to come in with categories that are not hit by the travel restriction, like the country's own citizens with transport of goods, etc., etc. And as a historian, I've not been able to see many cases of it being a successful measure, except if it's connected to quarantine, a strict quarantine, then it has been successful. But then it needs to be applied to everyone, and it needs to also be a disease that is typically very deadly, like the plague. You have actually examples between the Ottoman Empire and the Austrian Empire of travel, not travel restrictions, but quarantine measures in the 18th and 19th century that was highly efficient. But it was less of a traffic and it was the quarantine that was a successful measure, not the travel restriction. 
this pandemic that we see now has also been described as an infodemic because there's a lot of information going around that is partly wrong or entirely wrong, especially in social media. There are also conspiracy theories about what's behind this virus and the possible vaccine and so on. How has this been in past pandemics? Has there been the same problem? This is the first pandemic, uh, a real pandemic, with internet and with uh, also more modern mass media around the world and not only in the Western world, but this is the first with the internet. And this, of course, plays a part. But an interesting thing here is that even government sources for public agencies and so in many countries, including Sweden, often have wrong information about regulations or restrictions. Especially if it's not translated in another language, you can have one correct information in Swedish, but wrong information, for example, to foreigners in English. And I saw just preparing for this podcast, I saw a few examples of it now for the summer when you expect tourists that uh, you have summarize certain recommendations and regulations in English with wrong information, but with the link to the correct information at another agency. And this is actually very interesting because many other countries in Europe have sent out public information, for example, from a prime minister or similarly, to the citizens with paper mail in the mailbox when saying what is allowed or not. This type of information is often not what is actually in any legal text. There are many examples of where you kind of have stretched the truth because you want to be more restri- uh, people be more restricted than is legally possible. We have several examples of it. And for a neighboring country, Finland, for example, many citizens fought in Finland or even maybe a majority that, it was not, that you were not allowed to leave Finland if you didn't have an urgent errand. But it was totally free to leave Finland whenever you wanted because that's in the Finnish constitution that can't be changed even in time of emergency. And actually on the Finnish foreign office, there was you could find in the small print that you are allowed to leave Finland. But on the Finnish border control, Kransbevakningsväsendets homepage, they never said that it was not allowed to leave Finland. But they said which categories are allowed to travel into Finland and return traffic from Finland. It kind of implicitly implied that you are not allowed to leave Finland if it was not this um, categories. But that was only recommendation. And they had to change it because for a month ago or a little over a month ago, it was actually taken up as more or less as a scandal when several legal scholars brought this up in May in newspapers that you are deceiving the population. And there's many other examples of it. And you can also just Google a little bit of what is about your own country or how we talk about travel restrictions. You are mixed up, for example, in a major British newspaper, travel restrictions in Germany and Denmark. And this is very common. And you have uh, mixed all things up, countries, what is actually applicable and what is recommendations and what is law, ordinance. It's a mess. And you can often, when you look at your own country, find up to 10 even 20%, if you check randomly in international media, wrong information. Even in media, this is said to be quite good. And parts of it is, I think, an ambiguous in also the actually legal texts. They are written so fast and many of them actually in many countries have been ripped up, like in the Czech Republic and partly in Germany as unconstitutional in courts. 
and it's many court cases in the process because they are either for formal errors in the texts or simply they are unconstitutional or wrong body that taking the decision is on the wrong level, etc., etc. And they are very not logical in many cases because they have conflicting regulations and they are simply not logical and it's hard even for a person that is a legal expert to actually understand what they're saying and parts of it is I would say by purpose that it should sound like more restricted than they are if you can't for constitutional or other legal reasons impose certain restrictions that you would like to you can give an information or write them in a way that they are ambiguous and then communicate what is allowed or not to reach to a certain extent the same uh, goal. This is also unique in the, West, in the Western world in the modern time to do that in this way and even in some cases deceive the parliament, for example, to get the parliament to enact certain legislation with corona-related restrictions, but you, in some cases, more or less have deceived the parliament with information, I mean, rushed through in one or two days. And sometimes you claim, for example, that the recommendations come from a public health authority, but it's actually not the public health authority that have written this in this way, or in this clear way at least. So it's also not only in the social media private persons, but also even government officials and head of states that have come with, uh, I would say, at best ambiguous information and at worst deceiving information. And this is a symptom of being totally unprepared of a pandemic and uh, because it's no really preparation for it. And I think this is really interesting because much of the reactions to the corona pandemic, it boils down to the interpretation of statistics and to computer modeling of diseases that typically goes wrong. Because if you look at this earlier computer models of the swine flu, for example, or bird flu and many other diseases, they went totally wrong. They also modeled a far higher fertility and also much more widespread disease than you ended up with because it's very hard to model diseases and you have a lot of presumptions. And most of these presumptions are unvalidated and very hard to validate. Even at this stage, a couple of months later, you don't know really which type of restrictions or mitigation strategies have been successful or not because some countries with a strict lockdown have had higher mortality in the disease than, for example, Sweden with no lockdown. And you can see that certain measures like closing elementary schools have not been an important measure, that you know now, but which measures may have had an effect. It's still a matter of argument. And of course, since you don't know this, you can't model it either. It's really a black box. And much is a fitting curve to an already observed trend and extrapolated. And typically that gets wrong in the end and that that everyone working with models also know but all you have no other real toll to work with and models of something you can't really observe what happens in the future and i think that is a major problem going back to what you said before that we have forgotten all about pandemics because we haven't had any for at least five decades hong kong influenza maybe being the last one that we have seen in this extent but still the hong kong influenza is not that long ago i mean i remember my parents have been talking about it is you still know people who have had it 
How can we be so good at forgetting these things? Because we are not used to people dying, so to say. We are, of course, we are used to people dying, but not dying in epidemics. Even before the influenza vaccine, it's not very efficient, the influenza vaccine, but it helps to a certain extent. Risk groups for influenza, that's basically the same for the seasonal influenza, it's basically the same risk groups that is at risk for the coronavirus. It was a much higher mortality in the seasonal influenza. And we also have a lot of other diseases. If we look at, say, stroke, heart attack, um, cancer, the mortality rate for most of these diseases was much, much higher only a decade or a few decades ago than they are today. In the 1980s, the chance to survive many cancers or heart um, diseases was much, much lower than today. So people are used to that we are not dying of a virus circling around, which was till quite recently relatively common. I mean, we don't need to go much further back to find a total another mortality pattern. And I already touched on this, that we have much older population today and many in an older population with many severe underlying illnesses. That was quite rare that these people were alive only 30 years ago or so. The average age of those that die in the corona pandemic, it's at least in Europe, hovering around 80 or over. And many of these people in early pandemics, they were not around that many of this category of people. And we also are unused to that this virus actually can kill a large amount of people in a short time, which in a time when you had tuberculosis, uh, People die before antibiotica, especially older people die of ordinary pneumonia, pneumonia to a high extent. And this is not happening basically any, anymore. So we were used to these diseases. And even if several hundred thousand people in a country like the United States die in a pandemic influenza, not in a seasonal influenza, but in a pandemic influenza, that was um, something that everyone knew happened. But today, it has not happened in such a long time. My personal opinion is that we will get more and much, much more deadly pandemics. My fear, so to say, is that, in my opinion, the overreaction, in my opinion, to the corona pandemic will result in maybe an underreaction to, in the future to much, much more deadly diseases. We can very well get a disease like the SARS spreading around with this mortality rate or even Ebola in the future in the globalized world, it would be actually quite strange that we wouldn't get a very deadly pandemic at some point. And I think it can be that you underreact then if you overreact now. As a friend of mine said, you will not close down the world every five years or so in the future if you get this type of viruses, which is, I mean, in a globalized world, not entirely unlikely. It's still a little bit surprising that we were taken by such surprise by this pandemic when people have been talking about this for quite a while. I think it's the type of pandemic. You thought it was, as we talked about again, like a SARS and that you'd be able to contain this disease. And uh, when you found that it was just exploding in certain places, it kind of got out of hand and come 
as a sudden thing. I think with this epidemic modeling, you have modeled before that you would get very, very high mortality, but it turned out to be untrue. In my opinion, the panic, if I dare to say that actually was a panic a few months ago for the coronavirus, it's a combination of um, modeling of the epidemic spread of the spread of the disease, where you forecast millions of deaths with computer models that may be totally untrue, maybe have some uh, truth in them, but they are typically overestimating the mortality, this type of models and the spread of the disease. But you have these worst case scenarios from computer modeling. But on the same time, you have, like in northern Italy, overwhelmed hospitals with many people, especially old people, severely ill. That you have these live pictures from overwhelmed hospitals, people lying in the corridors, and in some cases dying at the same time as you have these models. In the past, you have model diseases in the last 20 years that they would lead to mass mortality but you didn't have any place where you actually had mass mortality or overwhelmed hospitals. When you had certain locations that you for a few weeks had overwhelmed hospitals, you got the panic that this would happen all over Europe, all over the world, spread in this way, because the models forecasted this. The models have forecasted this before, but you didn't have any case where this actually happened. Uh, So here you can kind of validate uh, live that this could happen on places that the models could be true. This is the difference that you actually could observe it is this time and this information could even spread faster today than only 10 years ago with smartphones, for example, and internet on the phone and reading the news or Facebook, etc. on the phone. And this uh, also gives another social or societal dimension of epidemics than in the past. I think this is also something very new from a historical perspective that you believe that you will be able to suppress a disease like this or come up with a cure very fast, that you can't accept that this will rip through the population for some time, that you will be able to control it and uh, you will get an efficient cure or a vaccine in a short time and get rid of the problem, so to say, that you can save everyone so to say that otherwise would be sick or or die by certain interventions including medical interventions in the past you kind of accepted that this was about human control that pandemics or epidemics you could take certain measures to minimize to mitigate the damage but you would not be able to erect the disease You were very well aware of that, but I think with modern medicine and the modern 21st century society, it's also an expectation among much of the population that you will be able from the medical sector, from the political sector, etc., to find a solution and go back to normal. It's a very strong pressure to find this cure or this vaccine in a super record time. It's another perception to diseases than in the past. So just to end off, you're a historian, um, you have a not, lot of knowledge about past pandemics and so on. How can you and other scientists work together during this pandemic to also generate more knowledge and also aid the decisions of authorities and politicians? That would actually be quite interesting if you're invited to contribute to this because the data is very poor of mortality, The number of infected persons, so even in the pandemics in the 60s and 50s, that we mentioned the Hong Kong flu and the Asian flu, we don't really know how many that 
died of the disease or how many that was infected is enormous range. But we can look at things like seasonality patterns, spread interventions, and so forth. But to my knowledge, historians have been very little, if at all, involved in this work. It seems to be not a very great interest to involve historians or looking at past pandemics, except for the Spanish flu, because that's the most deadly pandemic in the 20th century. And you also had the only example of the 20th century or something akin to lockdown or stay-at-home orders in the United States, for example, in the Spanish flu. And to look at the efficiency or lack of efficiency of such measures. Historical knowledge is useful to a certain extent, but I would not say that those measures that necessarily been successful in the past is successful today due to another type of way of living, urbanization, globalization, fast transports, etc. Certain things are probably general and also human reaction to a certain extent, but many things have changed so much. And we also need to remember what is might of cultural reasons, for example, applicable in parts of Asia might not be applicable in Europe. So in the end of the article from 1919, there's also some advice how to act in order not to get sick. I just want to read three of these advices, and I think we will all recognize this. Avoid needless crowding. Influenza is a crowd disease. Smother your coughs and sneezes. Others do not want the germs which you would throw away. Your fate may be in your own hands. Wash your hands before eating. Absolutely, and this was well known a hundred years ago and actually far before you know about bacteria and viruses that crowd spread the virus and also p- things like clothes that people have had that was infect- were infected. That is old knowledge, which also made this in- article from ni- in Science from 1919 interesting was that they advised against four lockdowns. That was not helpful. Social distances, yes, but uh, not to go too far. And they mentioned even theaters and schools and churches that was ambiguous if you should close these institutions in a pandemic. But you should avoid crowds and, and wash your hands and avoid sneeze and, or of course, avoid to go out if you're feeling ill. Yes. So in a couple of years, in a decade or so, we can look back at this pandemic and see how this compares then. Is there anything that you would like to add? Well, I think when we're talking about this article and the recommendations from May 1919 and what we look at in 2020, we have a certain discrepancy in many countries between measures imposed by politicians and the medical advices, what you should do. As we talked about earlier on, Entry restrictions is not, for example, something high up on the list. Social distances, yes, isolate people that are expected to be sick and so. But certain measures that you're taking in very many countries are found also known like 100 years ago in this article to be inefficient compared to some quite simple measures that you know are efficient. And still many countries have gone to measures that are advised against by their own health authorities. And this is quite surprising at the same time when everyone, almost everyone says that they follow the science or trust the science. And 
if you look at it more closely, you can see that computer modeling of pandemics or epidemics and the advices which measures are efficient in the computer models have informed policy very much compared to empirically old knowledge in the medical profession. So what is efficient in a computer model to suppress a pandemic have received in many cases a bigger influence than empirical knowledge of pandemics. So this with model-based knowledge and not empirical-based knowledge, it's really interesting because computer models that are really dependent on the input data have for many parts of public policy gained in importance in recent years. And I think this is an interesting phenomenon also as a scientist and researcher, that the empirical knowledge seems to be playing somewhat a less role than the model-based projections into the future. Thank you very much for coming here and talking to me. And thank you for your time and knowledge. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. We hope you enjoyed this episode and would be more than happy if you can help us spread the news about this new podcast. If you want to have a look at the science article from 1919, go to the webpage of the science magazine, sciencemag.org, and search for The Lessons of the Pandemic. The article was written by Major George Soper, an American sanitation engineer. It's a quite interesting read. If you haven't done so yet, you can also listen to the two previous episodes where I have talked to Ulf Landegen and Sverker Sölin. This episode concludes our coronavirus theme for now. SCAS Talks will be back in the autumn with new episodes. Until then, stay safe and stay healthy. Bye for now. Bye.